0: All right, thank you, guys. Let me join in with Josh in offering you a word of welcome. If you're a guest today, especially in our services or online, we're so glad that you're a part of our worship experience, and we would love to be able to have the opportunity to come alongside you and maybe to help you if you are in a search for what it means to be a follower of Christ or if you're a follower of Christ already but you don't have a church home, we would love to be able to talk with you about that. So we do hope that you'll take the time today or during the course of the week to uh, just text FL response those letters FL respond to eight three three five seven one three four seven five, 571 3475 And uh, we can follow up with you. Uh, if you're a youth, our youth pastor will follow up with you. If you're a university student, our university pastor will follow up with you. A young adult with family, our young adult pastor will follow up with you. So uh, we hope that you will give us that opportunity to come along with you uh, in discovering what God would have in store for you. And that is always our anticipation when we gather together in community as a people of God of how God is going to challenge us and speak to us and uh, stretch us and our understanding of who he is and the implications of that for uh, each one of our lives. And uh, we are in the book of James and uh, James is, uh, I think for all of us, a very challenging book. It's been a very challenging book. I think that's why uh, James perhaps is even uh, so very much ignored by theological scholars. Uh, it's much more entertaining. I think for scholars to spend time with the, the Pauline text and try to, to pick out the nuances of Paul's writings. What did he mean by this? What did he mean by that? Well, James is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of confusion about what James means. And so I think that's why we find it to be so very challenging. And so uh, I've richly benefited from this. And I've said to all of you that the tension that you feel in the book of James, whenever you're reading through this, and I hope you're reading through this with me, that tension that, that you feel and that tendency to want to pull back from it because it's so uh, dense and heavy and it's challenge and such an affront to our Western lives that we really need to be drawn to that. That's a good healthy tension that we need to embrace and we always want to be challenged and I hope that we understand that we only really grow when we are uncomfortable. Uh, That's true in exercise, and that's no less true in our spiritual lives as well. So as we come to James once again, we find ourselves in chapter 3. We're picking up where we left off last week. We're just doing a verse-by-verse exposition through this book, and uh, you can always catch up if you've missed the previous messages, but we're picking up in verses 13 And uh, verse 13, and going through verse 18. And we're really in the middle of a section here, a much larger section that began in chapter 3 and verse 1, and will go all the way to chapter 4 and verse 12, where James is speaking in particular to teachers. And those who hold the office of teacher uh, and teachers within that messianic uh, believing community and the emphasis that he is giving to this, you come to chapter four, uh, the the break of what we would call a chapter break, that's a much later edition. James, when he was writing, didn't see this as a break. So it's one continual section all the way from verse one of chapter three, all the way to verse 12 of chapter four and dealing with teachers and those that would hold the office of teacher uh, within. In that messianic community and the weight and the responsibility that that goes with that, and that it shouldn't be entered into lightly. But hopefully, what we understood and came away thinking last week, as we begin that section in chapter three and verse one, is that we we had to realize after hearing that message that that all of us, while you may not hold the office of teacher, all of us as followers of Christ, we are teachers of the faith. We are teachers of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. That when you and I leave this place, when we leave a sanctuary as a worshiping community and we go out into our, into our respective worlds, whether it's school or the workplace, wherever we find ourselves, wherever our, our feet are, uh, in a secular world, we become teachers to those around us of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so last week, Paul, James, rather, focused upon the use of the tongue and the power of the tongue and why why so very few should even want to be a teacher of God's word because there is such a weight and a responsibility that goes with that. Even in the final judgment, those who are teachers will be held to a stricter judgment And so this is something that isn't entered into lightly. And so what James is going to transition into now is the wisdom that is to characterize the people of God. He really sets the stage with that first clause in verse 13 where he poses the rhetorical question, who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, the question of James isn't seeking to identify those who are wise within that messianic community. James is just using that question so that he can now describe what wisdom actually looks like. I think there's sometimes some, uh, some confusion about godly wisdom when we say, well, I'm praying for godly wisdom. And James would even say that in chapter one in verse five, that you and I are to pray for wisdom in the ad- adverse circumstances in which that community found themselves. You pray to God, verse five, you pray and ask for wisdom. And sometimes this, this idea of godly wisdom or a biblical kind of wisdom, I think that there are many who think that means to, to have a full understanding that wisdom is knowing everything, understanding everything about God so that, so that I can understand the things that happen in life. And then if something happens in life and I don't understand it, then there must be something wrong with me spiritually. I must, I must lack Wisdom, that's not it at all. For James, and even in Scripture in its entirety, wisdom has nothing to do. It is not a cognitive exercise, but rather it is an application of what you know to be true, how you apply your faith to the circumstances of life. For James, he's very pragmatic. It is how wisdom is how the people of God do the things that God's people ought to do in God's world. J.I. Packer, a theologian, wrote a book years ago entitled Knowing God. And in his book, he has, uh, he has an interesting excerpt there where he, where he talks about this, this, this wisdom of God. And what should be our understanding of the wisdom of God? He, he equates the wisdom of God, uh, he uses the, metaf- the metaphor of learning how to drive a car. He said, you know, when, when you're learning to drive a car, the challenge is, is to learn about distance and braking and speed and the, and the symbiotic relationship that exists between, between those, those three things. When, when you're a wise driver, when you're a good driver, you don't come up to an S-curve in the road and, and begin wondering and speculating. I wonder why that engineer, why that civil, uh, civil engineer, why did they design an S-curve in the road like that? And when you're seeking to be a good driver, a wise driver, you don't don't pull up to a a traffic signal and begin wondering and speculating, why did they use yellow, green, and red in their color spectrum? Or you see someone riding their brake, you don't spend energy wondering, why. now, now why are they riding their brake? Actually, I do do that. But no, in each of those circumstances, a good driver has learned to manage well, learned to do the right thing between distance, braking, and speed. It's an appropriate response to the circumstances in which you find yourself. That's wisdom for James. That as a child of God, as a people of God, you're doing the way, you're doing things the way God would have you do them in his world. And so he's describing in these verses that follow, he's describing for us wisdom. Not who it is within that congregation or congregations, but what it looks like. James says there in verse 13 that wisdom is observable. It's observable. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show. Demonstrate, to make obvious, manifest, reveal. Let him show by his good behavior, by his behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. James has made it very clear, as does the entirety of Scripture, And sadly, the Western church has tried to create this tension between faith and works, but there is always this ethical implication for those who would be the people of God. There is always this ethical application of how we should then live as a people of faith. Oh, you can go back to James chapter two. We can go there, can't we? Where James has already said that faith without works, it's useless. Faith without works is dead. And so James says you want to know what wisdom looks like it's observable you can see it don't fall for a religious rhetoric don't let someone tell you tell you that they're that they're wise no don't fall for that now oh, you you can see it for yourself it is evident wisdom the wisdom of God is evident in good behavior that shouldn't surprise us in fact turn you can turn your page At least I can in my Bible, turn your page and go over to 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 15. Peter says, but like the Holy One, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your what? Behavior. In what we are revealing and made, what we are making manifest to the world of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among those who would be his people. And then turn the page to, to chapter two there in first Peter in verse 12, here he is again. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God on the day of his visitation. So you and I, in living out our faith, we're to reveal and make evident a, a, a behavior that is appropriate, that is in keeping with the one who has called us. There is to be a consistency about our lives and, and not just what we say, but a consistency in the life that, that we are pursuing, consistency at all times in behaviors. There's a book, entitled Presidential, uh, Presidential Wives. And in that book, the author Paul Baller tells the story that in the Washington household at Mount Vernon, the Washingtons always dressed for dinner, always dressed formally for dinner and expected everyone else to do so. And oftentimes, the, the Washington's granddaughter lived with them uh, for extended visits, and she didn't always comply with the dress code it, Dinner, and it was always a point of frustration for, for Mrs. Washington. And on one such occasion, when the dinner bell rang and everyone gathered at the table, here comes the granddaughter who had a friend with her visiting, young teenage granddaughter and her friend, teenage friend, and they and they came down to dinner. They were all unkempt, hair wasn't fixed, they weren't dressed appro- they were dressed casually. And Miss Washington bit her tongue, didn't say anything, even though she was frustrated. Well, at the conclusion of the meal, they noticed out the window that there was a a carriage making its way up the road. And and as the carriage got closer, they could see that it was uh, young Charles Carroll Jr. of of Carrollton and had with him two young French officers. The granddaughter and her friend asked quickly if they could be excused to go dress appropriately. Ms. Washington said, no, 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 you keep your seat. What is good enough for Mr. Washington, for General Washington, is good enough for his guest. You will stay as you are. You see, the world is always watching us. And I really don't think the world expects us to be perfect, but the world does expect us to be different. And when they know us to be a follower of Christ, they are watching us, they are watching our behavior, they are watching to see how consistent we are in the the confession that we make and the life that we are pursuing. Do you notice also there in verse 13, James says that this demonstration of wisdom is shown not only by good behavior, but it's good behavior in deeds by his good behavior, his deeds, again, action, behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Your translation may use the word meekness. It may be translated as meekness, but gentleness or, or meekness. And that's how Jesus would, would describe himself in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11 and in verse, in verse 29. Jesus would describe himself saying, I, I am gentle and humble in heart strangely enough you think about someone like Moses and I don't know about you but I know when I think of Moses I think of this this presence this powerful leader this powerful presence among among the people of God and yet we find in numbers in chapter 12 and verse 3 Moses is described like this very gentle Very gentle, more than than all the men that were on the face of the earth. It's even the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians chapter 5 verse 23. He says, this is is what marks the wisdom of God. Don't get caught up in thinking that this is some kind of cognitive pursuit, uh, a mastery of the theological nuances of interpretation. It's not that at all. Nobody can walk away from reading James thinking that wisdom has to do with acquired knowledge. But much more so, it is what we are making evident in our lives. I mention nearly every week how important context is in our understanding of the biblical writers and to truly appreciate what what James is setting forth here for those that would be teachers and for the likes of us who are teaching daily what it means to be a follower of Christ out in our world. James is sitting on a powder keg. If you go back to chapter one, you remember that this is a very trying context, this Anoem community. The Anawim were an impoverished people who remained obedient to God and and diligent in, in their service to God, even though they were they were a people being oppressed. But as we saw in chapter one, there were there were some there were some within that messianic community they wanted to revolt. They wanted to rise up against their their oppressors. This is why James says to them to pray in verse five of chapter one, pray for wisdom from God, because what you're thinking, what you're contemplating is in fact counter to the spirit of God. Violence is never going to be the answer to the achievement of the kingdom of God among men. So you pray and you pray for wisdom. Because the wisdom of God is reflected in the gentleness of heart. And the fear of James is, is that there are some holding the office of teacher. This is me reading between the lines here. The fact that he's addressing this, having already talked about it in the context of chapter one. My suspicion is is that James thinks that there are some in the position of teachers that are themselves the instigators of this rebellious spirit and this desire to revolt and they're gathering up their own little factions and constituencies within the greater body of Christ. James says don't be fooled by what is wisdom. Don't be fooled by religious rhetoric. There is nothing cheaper than religious talk. But if you want to know wisdom that is in your midst it is something that is very observable it is seen in good behavior and the gentleness of wisdom another thing james says about wisdom in his description notice in verses 14 through 16 it becomes obvious that when james is describing wisdom wisdom is something that is selfless selfless verse 14 but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, now notice that's a play off of verse 13. This is, this, is the, this, is the, this is the complete opposite. This is the antithetical response to the gentleness of spirit that we see, the gentleness of wisdom that we see in verse 13. This bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from heaven, but it is earthly. Strange, isn't it, that he would even call this, that he would even refer to this kind of behavior as a form of wisdom. And he said, oh, and I think the reason he's having to address this is just the gullibility of people, that there are those, uh, there are those in, uh, who sit under certain teachers. And even though these, these certain teachers that James is concerned about, Even though they are are teaching a false kind of wisdom, there are those that are naive sitting under them that are gullible that ascribe to them wisdom. So James says, yeah, they've got wisdom, but but it is a wisdom that is earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. It's hellish. That's not unfamiliar to us. In fact, I think we have to link, I think we have to link verse 15, what he's saying here. We have to link that back to chapter 3 and verse 6, where in talking about the tongue, he says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Now that's how it's made manifest. It's, this is where you see their, their true colors, bitter jealousy. And selfish. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder. There's chaos. There's fractious behavior. And remember, God is not the author of, of confusion and chaos. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. The two ther- the two terms that James uses here are interesting in in verse 14. First, he talks about about bitter jealous- jealousy. Literally translated, it is it's not the word zealous. It, it's, 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 it's someone uh, that is that is a zealot in nature, a zealous kind of of behavior. Literally, it is it is a hostile zeal. Now, in any movement and in any religion where you have zealots, extreme expressions, you have violence. And that's the fear and the suspicion that that James is describing here. This kind kind of, of bitter jealousy, this harsh zeal. That yes, in their mind, because they are so driven by selfish ambition, because they are not selfless, because they are so driven by by selfish ambition, they will will sow discord, they will cause problems, Uh, they will resort even to violence. They see violence as a means that that justifies the end. That because they, in their mind, because they have some noble end in mind that, that they've reconciled themselves to, then violence is, violence is okay. James' point is that that's earthly, it's demonic, and it has nothing to do with, with the heart and the mind of God, this kind of selfish ambition the second term I find interesting here because it's such a rare word in, in the New Testament. Erethia is the word that, that James utilizes here. And, and before Erethia ever made its way into the New Testament, the only other place you found Erethia in, in the entirety of Greek it, literature was in the writings of Aristotle. And where Aristotle used the word Erethia, he used it in making reference to politicians who utilized unscrupulous means to achieve their desired end and now James has co-opted that that term and that word and now he's using it to describe those who are using unscrupulous means unbiblical means hellish means earthly means temporal means to accomplish their own kingdom desire They do not act and they do not teach for the greater good of the body, the body of Christ, the greater community of faith. They are concerned only about their little segment. You want to see a fractious, you want to see an earthly kind of of teaching, you look for those, it's characteristic of those who want to withdraw themselves, who want to be treated exclusively, who want to be treated differently, that do not want to be a part of the greater whole. They will use language like, well, this class only exists because of me. Oh, when I'm not here, this class will will disappear. That is cult language. But those who are selfless, They know that they are teaching and training disciples who will become greater churchmen, greater involvement, greater service into the body of Christ. They are producing disciples and teachers that that will go out and they will take on offices and responsibilities within the life of the congregation themselves. But you want to see dysfunction in teaching, then you look for that which becomes cloistered. Which thinks they are separate and apart and exclusive, deserving to be treated differently than everyone else. Well, James is very vivid that it's these who are filled with bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil. You see, the concern of James, and James is going to use the word peace in the verses that follow. James doesn't write much about peace. But when you read James in his entirety, in the entirety of the book, his concern is peace within the body of Christ. He is concerned about peace that is a powder keg right now. He is concerned about the peace of that and the unity of that community of faith because of its witness to the world, because of its testimony to the world, because of its unique role in bearing witness to the world of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And James' point is we've got to look different. We can't be hostile and reactionary like, like the world is to the circumstances. I mean, you look at our world today. I mean, our world today is characterized, at least what we're shown on on media, it's always extremist views, extremist perspectives, extremist viewpoints, extremist expressions. There's anger, hostility. It was no different for James' audience, the world in, in which they lived, James says, in this culture, in a culture such as this, and in a culture such as ours, what a unique opportunity this is to be a unique and distinctive people, a peaceful presence in a world that is is hostile. So for James, wisdom is observable. Wisdom is selfless. Concerns itself only with the kingdom of God, the greater body, the greater presence of God's people in the world, in the community itself. Always acting for the greater good of the community, never self. But a third thing, for James, wisdom is transformational. It is the result of a life that has been transformed by the resurrected Christ and the Spirit of God, but the wisdom from above, in contrast to the wisdom from below that is that is earthly, that is hellish. But the wisdom from above is first pure. He gives seven attributes here of what wisdom looks like. First it is it is pure. That is, it has a single-minded devotion to the things of God, no ulterior motives. In fact, when we get to chapter 4 and verse 8, we'll we'll see James say, say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So someone who is pure in heart, they have a single-mindedness of devotion. Single-minded commitment to following after Christ, being a part of of the community of of faith. Secondly, they're peace-loving. They're not looking for chaos. They're not looking for confusion. They're not going to perpetuate fractious behavior, factious behavior within the body of Christ. They're not going to cause disruption. They're peace loving. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus would say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not that, that, they just, that they just long for peace. It means they seek after peace. They're the peacemakers. They're deliberate. They're intentional. Then third, we've already discussed, they are gentle. They're gentle, they're meek. They're not concerned about their personal rights. They're concerned about, about the greater good, someone who is gentle and meek, that's someone that, that is very balanced in life. They strike that happy medium between overreaction and no reaction whatsoever, which I think is why he followed it with this attribute. They are reasonable. Oh, we miss that in today's world, don't we? Those who are just reasonable. Today, our world is characterized by by reactionaries. But the wise, they're they're reasonable. They're balanced. They're thoughtful. And they're speaking in their analysis of things. They're consensus builders. They're, They're reasonable. They're teachable part of being reasonable. Now you have to understand as James is writing this, James in his mind when he's thinking about wisdom, when he writes about wisdom, and when his audience, this messianic community receives this letter and they see James writing about wisdom, their mind immediately goes to the Torah and to the wisdom literature and the writings of their, there is no New Testament at that time. So they're immediately, their minds is going in, in back to the Torah and, and the wisdom literature and, and the writings, uh, to the writings, uh, the historical writings. And of course, what, what, and all of that, has the dynamic of the resurrected Christ who fulfilled the law, the Torah. But James is heavily influenced. If you go back to the book of Proverbs, the very start of Proverbs... What you're seeing in James 7 attributes are the very things that the wisdom writer wrote here in the first proverb, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and integrity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion, a wise person will hear and increase in learning." You see, a wise teacher wants to continue to be taught. They want to continue to learn. They they want someone to have spiritual authority over them that can pour into them to guide them, to to instruct. Beware of those. Listen, church, beware of those that are unteachable that are teachers. That want to do their, their own thing. A wise person will hear an increase in learning and a person of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Only false wisdom wants to operate as a lone wolf in its own vacuum. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise in their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That is in the mind of James as he is writing about these seven attributes. They're reasonable. They're reasonable. Fifth, they are full of mercy and good fruits, that is, uh, someone who is wise, they they have the wisdom to extend to others the mercy and grace that they themselves have have received and experienced. They're impartial, impartiality was a problem. We saw back in chapter 2, James was appalled, the partiality that, that some within that church were giving to the affluent, these are the very ones that oppressed you. These are the very ones that are part of the system that keeps you down. And now you're going to show them favorable treatment, partiality. Oh, not not the one who is wise. And then he says, finally, seventh, the wise are free from hypocrisy. That is, you will see a consistency between what they teach you will see a consistency between what they teach and the life that they are pursuing. There'll be no difference. Consistent. Doesn't mean to be without error, then maybe we don't mess up, but there is a consistency between what we say, between what we teach, and the life that we're pursuing. You say, man, Bobby, this all sounds impossible, and it is impossible by our own power. But it is achievable. It is doable because of the resurrected Christ. It is doable because of the Holy Spirit who when we commit our lives to Christ comes and takes up residence in us. The resurrected Christ dwells in us and as we abide in him and him in us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter one in verse 30, it says of us as believers who are in Christ Jesus, that this Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. This one who dwells in us is himself wisdom who has come from God. And so my prayer for us, as we leave this place and go out into the world, That as the world watches us, as they observe us, as we are teaching the world, what it is to be a follower of Christ is that the world would see this kind of wisdom in us. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that we would truly be the wisdom of God made manifest to the world. That Lord, in this world of hostility, in this world that is filled with so much anger, I pray, Lord, that we would be a presence of peace, a presence of gentleness, a presence of the fruit of the Spirit being made manifest through us. We, your people, who bear testimony to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, Father, might we be wise in our doing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Once again, let me just encourage you over the course of the week that if you have questions, decisions that you want to make, just text that, those letters FL respond to the number that we provide, 833 571 3475, and we can follow up with you and pray with you about the implications of that. But I hope that you will give us that opportunity. Tell you what, I want us to close this way. I want us to stand. And I want to pronounce this blessing upon you. It is the blessing of Aaron to the nation of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. God bless, you're dismissed.